to be a good interviewer, you just have to listen, but also be prepared for where the, the, uh, the talk's going and open it so that people can share um, transparently and authentically and give them the opportunity. I think that's what the, a good interviewer does. People can see through it if you're trying to be too salesy or too pushy uh, and, or if you're making up stats or you, you know, things that don't add up. So being authentic is just the safest way to do it, isn't it? I mean, there's an old saying, uh, uh, an honest person doesn't need a good memory because you don't have to remember the lies you've told in the past and cover them up. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a passionate people person who loves sharing the stories of unsung business heroes. With a Bachelor of Communications and Marketing from the University of New South Wales, our guest is a board director of the Australasian Pioneers Club. His 30-year career in media includes sales and account manager roles at Channel 9, Macquarie Radio, Sony Music Australia, and the Australian Associated Press. In recent years, he transitioned from being the client and marketing director of ClickThrough to founding his own company, Purpose Publishing Australia. I'm pleased to introduce to you an honest, persistent, and driven son of a boat builder, purposeful entrepreneur, and has a passion for the backstory of a business, Charles Fairley. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. Let's take a ride back in memory lane here for to begin with you know what was like like growing up in gosford on the beautiful central coast of australia oh it's very different to what it is now craig i mean i'm just about to turn 60 so my early childhood was in the 1960s i was born in 1960 and in those days i you know it was very basic um rode my bike to school it was very easy going we played outside till it got dark you know the typical story um, that's the opposite of what young kids do these days of course so it was very laid back um, went to the gosford public school uh, yeah just had a great life dad was a boat builder so we spent a lot of time on the water uh, i had two younger sisters uh, but we just enjoyed either the beach or the lake on the boat and yeah it was a great upbringing so what were your favorite adventures on the ocean or, or on the lakes when you were sailing Oh, I used to go canoeing and as a young boy we'd try and create sails for our canoes and uh, one instance we ended up <laughs> sailing in the middle of a powerboat race and got told off. <laughs> There's all sorts of little stories but um, yeah we'd go uh, out on dad's boats when he launched them he'd ha have to sail them and deliver them down to Woi Woi and out to Sydney um, so often we'd be going with him on that um, and of course he owned his own yachts so we'd go away for weekends or even weeks up the Hawkesbury River which was beautiful and take the dog and the cat on the boat with us and uh, spend a week up there just hanging around and going to beaches and yeah, it was a fantastic life. Beautiful. Now, now talking about, you know, taking boats and bringing them into Sydney, you know, obviously sailing towards Sydney Harbour Bridge must, is something very iconic with the, with the opera house there. You know, is that something you got to you know, sort of that those moments cherish quite often? Yeah, occasionally. Um, we 
we wouldn't have to, to come all the way down to Sydney, but um, we would be sailing on Sydney Harbour every now and again, and that was the big smoke for me. So, yeah, that was um, more Dad's area because often he'd be racing either in Sydney Harbour or he'd do a, a Gosford to Lord Howe Island race, for example, because being a boat builder, he endorsed his boats by sailing them and, and showing them off and promoting them by winning races. And prior to that, he was a powerboat builder before he got into yachting, so he would be racing the powerboats and you know, he was really immersed in that whole thing. He was a champion bridge-to-bridge uh, -bridge winner three years in a row and he won the BP Offshore Zoom for his class. He had a couple of speed records. So he really immersed himself in his business and he was the, a great ambassador for what he did, both in the powerboats and the yachting. Yeah, exciting to have that role model you know, as a child growing up. Yeah, absolutely. I really admired what he did. He was one of the old um, old school, you know, he had his faults as well because he, he was, uh, I guess, from that depression mentality where they hoarded everything and everything had to be repurposed and reused, which is uh, good and bad things, of course. But um, no, he was, he was a great role model and I really admired him. And that was kind of why I got into doing the books in a way, because I wanted to record his accomplishments and what he built as a business. He had the business up there on the Central Coast for 40 years and he employed at one point about 35 staff, so it was fairly substantial, and he was quite a pioneer in the in the fiberglass industry, if you like, and well respected. But once he retired, and now he's passed on, you know, there wouldn't have been a record of that unless someone had written it all down. And that was one of my motivations was to record his history in the Unsung Business Hero series. So I was I was very um, happy to be able to record that and for him to see it before uh, he passed away, which is uh, it was a blessing. What a great gesture to, to your father. Yeah, it was a nice thing to be able to do. To do. Yeah. So moving on, you, you studied a bachelor's in communications and marketing at the University of New South Wales. What drew you to the world of marketing? I think it just had so many options and a bachelor in those days, you could uh, select various electives after you did the first year or two. So I just kept my options open really, Craig. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I could have gone down the path of accounting marketing, industrial relations, economics, they're all sub-branches of that degree. So it, it really just kept my options open. Originally, I went, went to university to do town planning, but changed my mind at the last minute. So it's um, something that my son's now going through. He's just in the first year of uni and he's not sure about what he's doing as well. So it's interesting to have lived through that experience myself. So early on in your career, you landed in the role as promotions manager for Dick Smith Electronics. Yes. What was it like working in a world of technology during a time when the Atari and, and probably Commodore 64 were slowly coming into fashion? They were, absolutely, yes. And we were, we were selling new things called fax machines and all sorts of tech. Um, it was really interesting. I mean, uh, working in that business was a real eye and it showed you you could do anything because Dick was that sort of adventure and he was flying the helicopters around the world and he was doing some really advanced things for... Um, retail as well so he really thought outside the box and that was another great role model that I learned a lot from although he had just sold the business to Woolworths in 1984 when I started there but his imprint was still very heavy on the business and um, one example of what he would do would he'd sit down at the end of every week um, and record a video and in those days of course it was VHS but I think we had 50 or 55 stores and they'd record about an hour of Dick talking about, you know, this is what's happening in the purchasing department. This is what we're planning for the marketing. This is what we're doing with new products. Um, this department's done this great, you know, reward them with a great accolade. 
and uh, some achievements might be talked about in individual sense as well, but then it also shows some new products and then they duplicate that video and send it out to the 50 stores and it, every staff member had to sit down and watch that video. Yeah. So it was like a video update, which was common now, but very advanced for its time. Yeah, it happens, it happens in a split second nowadays and, exactly. and it's alive, right? Exactly, yeah. So it must have been very sad to, for you to see Dick Smith stores close its doors in, in 2016. Yeah, it's, uh, they're still going online. They're taken over by Kogan, but yeah, it was the end of an era for sure. I mean, Dick started out from very humble beginnings and he was a real, um, you know, a great story for fans of success and fans of, of pioneers. And, you know, he was the archetypal success story, wasn't he, for Australian business and being so outspoken and self-promoting and he did a great job of, um, you know, keeping his profile high. Uh, even after Dick Smith Electronics was sold, he then had Australian Geographic and then he's moved into the food business more recently and he's a very vocal advocate for yeah. workers and for um, manufacturing and local business and that sort of thing. So. It's very sad to see something come to an end like that, and it was almost an unnecessary end with the the uh, private capital getting in getting in there and mucking up the balance sheets. But yeah, it's, it's a lesson for everyone, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So from this role, you moved into a thirty-year career in the exciting industry of of media. How did you get your first start at Two Day FM? Uh, I just applied for a job, Craig. That was as simple as that. I mean, my job at Dick Smith, I got through um, someone said, oh, IT and computers, that's a growing industry. I wrote 10 letters, so I picked out the top 10 businesses and wrote a letter to IBM and Wang at the time, they were a big IT company. Dick Smith, of course, was one. Uh, but 10 of them I wrote letters to, just on spec, and Dick Smith were the people that gave me a job. So um, the job at uh, Today FM in media was purely applying for a job as an account manager, and I was pretty green in the, in the sense of sales and account management, but love the idea of working in the media, of course. And, you know, there's a lot of mystery and a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors with, with radio, especially because you, you hear it, but you don't see it. And so, you know, getting to know how it all worked and what went on in the studios and the journalists and the newsreaders and the on-air guys and you know, the rating system, it was all just a really steep learning curve for me. And then I was only there for less than 12 months and someone left from that uh, business to Channel 9 and he hired me to follow him shortly afterwards. So that's how I went into Channel 9. Brilliant. So the music and media industries have seen you know, massive changes in the last three decades. From a sales point of view though, have the underlying fundamentals changed or those, do they still hold really strong? No, I think there's still the basic elements, as you say, that are important. So, you know, you have to offer value, you have to solve someone's problem and no one's going to buy from you unless they know you and like you and trust you. So therefore, it's all about the relationship. So salespeople that are successful have good relationships, long-term relationships, and they realize that they're, you're not selling a product, you're selling the, the personalities, if you like. That holds very, very true. When you recall the special moments in your media career, what characteristics did the leaders show that enabled those moments to really shine through? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, all the leaders that I've worked with were were incredible people. Um, I think long-term vision and seeing the bigger picture was something that is uh, is important and they brought to the table. When you're an account manager and you're on 
monthly budgets, it's very micro focused, whereas they are looking at the 12, 18 months ahead. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting observation, I guess, but I hadn't thought about it, to be honest. But um, there's, you know, everyone that I came across had different characteristics, let's say, and I think they all had their strengths and some of them uh, were stronger than others. But Channel 9 at the time was a very interesting place when you had people like Sam Chisholm and Vance Lotheringer reporting to Kerry Packer, who was still around in the day. And I was working there at the time when Packer brought it back from Alan Bond. So that was a very interesting few uh, few months in the history of Australian media, for sure. Two very high profile, um, very headstrong people who yeah, kind absolutely. of left their mark. And, and I imagine there would have been some great discussions over the board table during those times. Yeah. Well, that was a time when Kerry said, you only get one Alan Bond in your life and I just had mine. <laughs> <laughs> What was the biggest lesson you learned in radio and maybe also in the TV industry? I think what I picked up from uh, from that exposure was that people will buy something that adds value and gives them an audience. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be amazingly expensive to produce. So you'd walk on the set of A Current Affair and you'd be surprised by how marked and grubby and when it when you look at it on television it looks sparkling and brilliant and new uh, but on set it was just a room with a desk uh, so to me that sort of i guess inferred that you can create something out of nothing you know mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a massive investment to offer value to the end user yeah, it's a great great observation or insight there yeah well, what kept the music within you still singing so strong over those three decades? Oh, well, you touched on it earlier, I think, Craig, the changes and the, the technology and the constant updates and new new items coming through the system. I think that's always going to keep things fresh for you. And, you know, if you're always learning, you're always growing, aren't you? So that's something that keeps, um, keeps us all young, doesn't it? <laughs> sure. Let's make a sale change. And in, in 2014, you decide to tack into a new world where you go from working for someone else to now working for yourself. What was the catalyst behind this wind shift, so to speak? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess um, I was 54 and I applied for a few jobs, went um, down the path of sending out resumes and didn't hear anything back except crickets. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to do something here. And I loved the stories of small business having worked in and the direct side of Channel 9, which is where the smaller accounts and smaller businesses market their, their product. Um, and radio, of course, on a direct basis. So you got to know not only the marketing manager, but also the owner of the business. And, and uh, you could see that they were such passionate people and they were 24-7 immersed in their business. And I think a lot of that goes unrecognised. And when I coupled that with the idea of um, sharing my dad's story, I thought, you know, a lot of people like to write books and use books as a marketing tool, but it's a lot of work and there's a lot of expense around it. And what if I do the wrong thing? A lot of risk around it, right? So, you know, if I bring out a book that's not right or it's out of date or it's got a bad image or... So I thought, well, why not put more than one person into, into a book? They get all the same benefits, but they share the cost. So it's a, the economies of scale come into play and had this idea. And I took it to a few people, um, about five or ten people that said they'd be interested in doing it. Because what happens is everybody gets a quantity of books that they can then give out as a corporate gift. 
Uh, that was another level of thinking was that, well, corporate gifts are great, but a lot of people give out a bottle of champagne or a bunch of flowers or a, maybe a food hamper, but all those things are consumed and disappear within a few weeks. And there's nothing left, but a book stays around forever. And uh, despite the fact that eBooks and Kindle made such a big impact on bookstores, I thought with my B2B concept, I didn't need to rely on retail. I could pre-ship the books if you like. So everybody that had a chapter in the book got some books to give out as a corporate gift and it, it ticked a lot of boxes. Very smart, smart idea. So you have an exciting role to play in society where you enable other people's stories to inspire future genius whether that be on a local level or the big global stage. So how do you select the people you uncover for the world to see? Uh, good question. Um, some of them come to me, some of them are referrals and introductions, and I, I do a lot of events and networking and going out and meeting people. Um, and also, you know, I use LinkedIn to find people with interesting stories and maybe approach them about what they're doing. And, you know, a lot of people are shy and don't want to promote themselves in that way, and that, I understand that. So. It's a matter of them wanting to see it as a piece of their marketing. Uh, and what it does, it, it really humanizes their business. So it gets behind the scenes and gets under the skin. And, you know, people start sharing their stories. It could be about mental health. It could be about their teenage homelessness. It could be about their partner uh, having cancer, maybe. But everyone's got an interesting story and something that we can all learn from. And that's really what I wanted to get to was helping other people realize that they're not alone out there which is often the case with the CEO of a small business and the solopreneurs, uh, very lonely in some instances. But a lot of people have been through the same thing. So that's what I wanted to communicate was that, you know, you can learn from other people's experience and their, their challenges, but also the solutions and put a positive spin on it. There's probably a lot of people listening that are thinking, well, my story is not good enough. You know, how can, why would people want to listen to my story? So for you, how do you, you know, try and determine what are the key elements of a good story? Elements of a good story, I think, are that people can relate to it. Um, obviously, it's all very um, personal, but people really appreciate it when people share intimate things. Um, and I think with a podcast and video, you're hearing them, you're seeing them with the case of the video. It's not just reading in a book. So we also do the digital content as well. And I think that's really getting to know someone. You know, it's not face to face, but it's about as close as you can get without being face to face and being in the room with them. So I think it, it's a very intimate thing that you're someone's sharing their story. But um, yeah, it's an interesting question. There's uh, so many different stories. There's 50 different stories in each in each book that we do and they're all very different yeah you have a very unique approach to the way unsung business heroes has been developed i'm curious to know how did you come up with the business model and and, and i suppose the process of repurposing the the content that you deliver for that yeah we do one sitting but we repurpose that into various forms of content so it comes out as a book of course but also video and podcast and we do still photography at the same time um, and really that was just uh, an economy question more than anything. Um, I'm trying to minimise the cost because then I can pass that on to the, the people in the book and keep it fairly reasonable. And likewise, we do uh, 10,000 books and that reduces the unit cost again. So 
it makes it much more affordable than someone trying to print their own book um, and take all the risk around retail and that side of it. Um, I think it was just a matter of sitting down with a spreadsheet and deciding that if I could get this many people and uh, have so many um, books and just balancing the cost versus the, the income and uh, allowing it to be, it's almost a crowdfunded thing in a sense because the yeah. 50 people are really just sharing in the production costs and I'm part of the production cost. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great idea. Sure. How did you, you know, so, so when it goes to market, you're using a model where the people that are investing or crowdfunding into the book and their stories being sold are doing most of the marketing with there, then handing it out. Are you also doing some of your own marketing as well? Oh yeah, hundred percent. We do quite a lot. We have some events. Uh, we've also pushed the book out into Dimmick's, Booktopia, Harry Hartog, which is a local bookstore. Um, so there's a presence at retail, but it's not massive turnover for us. Um, but it's more to be able to say, well, if you do want to find the book, it's out there. Uh, but there's a lot of marketing goes on behind the scenes after the launch of the book. But the beauty of the whole system is that if, I, if I'm sharing my story in the book, there's 49 other people's networks also seeing the book. So I'm really tapping into those other 49 groups of people or readers, if you like, end users. Um, so it's almost leveraging the, the um, other people's LinkedIn, if you like. It's kind of a mini LinkedIn in that sense. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm able to give people access to 49 other people's networks through that book. So it's kind of like an exponential marketing growth tree. Exactly. Sort of approach. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So people get 200 books but their story is actually seen by 10,000. Have you noticed any sort of common threads between the success of the people that you've interviewed? Yeah, a couple of common themes come up, which is interesting. I mean, one that I've noticed is that education at a school level wasn't that important to their success. Some went through school swimmingly, successfully, and that was fine, but others didn't. And it wasn't until they really got in the workforce that they realized that this is how it reality works this is the economy and uh, especially when there's real dollars coming in their hand they have an epiphany if you like and suddenly realize that well i can make money doing this it's not necessary that i have to have a degree i'm sure it's a little unfair for you to single out any one person or story as you get to spend some time with some amazing people can you give us an insight into maybe one or two people's stories that really connected with your heart with my heart um there are so many that work on so many levels, but uh, one person who I have a lot of admiration for is Daniel Davis, who was in our first book. He uh, came from the lower socioeconomic area of Western Sydney. His um, family background was that he had three stepfathers by the time he was 13. They'd all been in jail. Uh, there were weapons, drugs, alcohol issues in the house. Um, but at 13, he left home on his own volition and established himself somewhere where he could still go to school and he finished the HSC. And for someone at 13 to have that sort of ability to extract himself and to see that there's another world out there that I'm going to be part of, I just think that's you know, unbelievable. And he's now helping giving back. He's helping teenagers in the same local areas there. He lectures at the schools in the area. Um, he's running a very successful business which started out as Gallup Solutions, which was uh, an evolution out of an IGA franchise that he had for many years. 
and it's now transformed from Gallup into EOS, which again helps businesses identify the silos and the, the strengths and weaknesses of their businesses. And he's really flourishing. He's got an office in Barangaroo. It's great, great to hear that, you know, that people transcend themselves, as you say, from a from an environment to a new environment, and then it allows them to really flourish and excel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, help, helping other people and paying it back, which is fantastic. Full circle. Yep. What has been the response from the people you've interviewed, you know, once the book's gone to market and, and people are getting it out there? What, what's been the biggest response back from them? Uh, everyone really enjoys giving it out. Uh, I get only anecdotal evidence. I don't have any quantitative stats. I'd love to to be able to do that, but it's really, uh, apart from Google Analytics, there's no stats around it. But um, I get great reports from people saying that people really appreciate getting the book and um, more and more people are seeing it on reception desks and in bookstores and I think they get a kick out of that too. So it's all very positive. How did the community respond to the inspirational work that you do? So, right, so you, you, you're talking about now it's going into these different places, but are you getting the community then come back to you and say, hey, thanks for producing this book, even though they haven't had any involvement with you? Uh, no, everyone really admires the book, I think, or the books. Um, everyone likes the concept. Um, I'm not sure about the actual community, though. I'm not business community, for sure, yeah. 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 What did you learn from Series 1 that enabled you to take Series 2 maybe to a different level? I think the difference from Series 1 to Series 2 was that we got a bit more digital content. So we didn't do podcasts in the first series, but of course we had the audio from the videos, so it was a simple matter of just editing the audio tracks. Um, what we did in the first series was we had a journalist asking questions, but we didn't even have him mic'd up. So he was just capturing the the audio from the the hero or the speaker and um, so the second time around we've used the mic on the interviewer which has been me this time so I've grown into from being just an observer to now being the interviewer which has sometimes been a challenge for me because I'm not uh, I'm a great listener but I'm not a, a journalist by background but so, uh, I'm sure you've seen plenty of good examples through your media days to to know what yeah. what, what good interviewing is yeah absolutely I think to be a good interviewer, you just have to listen, but also be prepared for where the the, uh, the talk's going and open it so that people can share um, transparently and authentically and give them the opportunity. I think that's what the, a good interviewer does. That authenticity is, is the beauty and the art of a good story and, and also a good interview, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And people can see through it if you're trying to be too salesy or too pushy. Uh, and or if you're making up stats or you you know things that don't add up so being authentic is just the safest way to do it isn't it I mean there's an old saying uh, uh, an honest person doesn't need a good memory because you don't have to remember the lies you've told in the past and cover them up (laughs) (laughs) so now that you've completed two wonderful series and opened up the stories of 100 brilliant business people what is next for unsung business heroes uh, we're doing a third book, so that's in production. Uh, we're out scouting people at the moment, so um, it's very early days, but we're tweaking a little bit the business model and learning as we go again. Um, we might even tweak the title and uh, it'll be part three of Unsung Business Heroes, but it, it might be business success stories. Um, and that's based on the reaction we had from the heroes title. A lot of people felt it was a bit 
too braggadocious and um, you know it's a bit too blowing their own trumpet so we pulled it back a peg and we put the focus back on the business success rather than the person being the hero mm. Okay. Interesting uh, that, that they kind of saw that, you know, like obviously now you mentioned it, it does kind of make sense that most people that are quite successful are very humble. Absolutely. And have a lot of humility, so they, they don't really want to be put them, putting themselves up on the pedestal. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So to speak. Yeah. So owning your own business can be very encompassing. What habits or routines do you have in place to ensure that you can bring out your creative genius every day? Oh, good question. I work from home, so I definitely have that zone. If I'm in that room, I'm working. Um, but at the same time, I can be checking things, um, you know, looking at the LinkedIn and responding to things if I need to at the time. So outside of that room, um, there's no set routines. I mean, my role goes up and down in terms of the function. So we're, when we're in interview phase, that's... that's uh, you know, more a, a logistical role, getting the crew into the meeting rooms and booking people in. And then when it, all the content's done, it's liaising with the journalists and getting all the, again, all the elements together. So each of the 50 people have to send me not only their logo and their details, contact with website, that sort of thing, um, but they've also got to approve all the content. And, you know, I want them to be happy. And my philosophy is to under promise and over deliver so you know I try to make sure that they're more than happy with what they're getting um, and that way you get the spin-off of them sharing that with other people and because this business relies on referrals and introductions that's very important I think so we know how important is it exercises to our mind and body what do you like to do to ensure that you have an active and healthy lifestyle around the work that you do um, I've just in the last 18 months become a bike rider or a mammal as they call them, <laughs> middle-aged men in Lycra. <laughs> so there's a bunch of us around the neighbourhood here who are into bike riding. We go religiously four times a week and I live very close to Centennial Park so that's a really, uh, really lucky situation to be in and we make full use of it. But prior to that I was doing a bit of jogging, a bit of running and uh, also uh, walking. So my wife and I would walk the dog, and but walking at a good pace and get your heart rate up and making sure it's doing some benefit. If you stroll along too slowly, I don't think there's much benefit in that apart from um, having time to think about the business, of course, which is always good too. So we kind of hear, I'm going to swing back a little bit here. So early on in the interview, we talked a lot about your dad. Do you want to share some insights around some of the real, you know, why his business was successful for such a long period of time? Sure, Craig. I think, um, you know, he had his faults as well. He, he wasn't a good delegator, but um, I think he was successful because he was pretty visionary. He had a good manual mind. He came from that, that era of being very hands-on and an engineering almost kind of background. His dad was an engineer. And I just think he could see the end result and he knew uh, that there was a sound business model in it and he would push through and I think I've inherited that from him with my my situation here. It's it's a long gestation period for the book, so you've really got to be persistent, have the long-term vision that it's going to be successful, and just keep pushing ahead. Having said that, you know, a smart person might might uh, 
pivot and prop and change and, and move into something different if it's not working. So, I mean, what I'm doing is a bit of a passion project. It's not really making a massive amount of money. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something that, um, you know, someone who was in it for the financial reasons might, might have changed, but I, I see the altruistic side of it more, as being more important in what I'm doing. And, and you're also, you know, board director in the, uh, so with Pioneers. Yep. So can you tell us a little bit about what that's all about? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's, um, it's a club, there's a, there's a men's Pioneers and a women's Pioneers, which is a bit of a, an anachronism, I suppose. But um, it's been around for over 100 years and it hails back to the days when there were a lot more clubs in Sydney and people went out to clubs rather than watching TV or the movies and um, the Pioneers is specifically for people that have got ancestry going back into the mid-1800s, so pre-1840, and my relative came out back in the day, was a reverend, and actually went to New Zealand and settled first missionary in Kerry Kerry, and so he's got a real connection to New Zealand, which is interesting. Um, but the club itself is just really people who are interested in, um, you know, colonial Australia and pioneering and honouring our ancestors and, and it's not a closed shop people who we, we have lots of members who are first generation Australians so it's people who are of that ilk but they've got maybe an interest in genealogy and history and there's a, t a touch of the military history in there as well so it's just a fascinating thing to, to have as a hobby and it becomes a great social thing for people who uh, there's a lot of members who have retired so they see it as their one month one day a month trip into the city catch up with old friends great so we all know smart people have great answers but the best people ask great questions when was the last time you did something for the first time good question i did something for the first time yesterday and we held an event which um, was a little bit out of the box and a little bit of a risk but it was it was a an idea that I had because I had a meeting about 12 months with, ago with a chap from Melbourne who was staying in the city and I, I wanted to meet up with him because he's got a really great story. He came from Tehran. He was in, he was in a, a migra migrants camp in Australia at, in his teenage years. Had a very rough start to his Australian citizenship but now has been super successful and runs a, an IT business out of Melbourne. And great guy, Sam Bashiri is his name and he's on LinkedIn. You'll see him there. But Sam said, let's have a walk around the city instead. I'm from Melbourne, I want to see a bit of Sydney. So that was fantastic. And I had this idea because we walked down through the botanical gardens and around the opera house. So I thought, what a great idea for an event. We'll have an, a networking meeting by walking around the city. So I called it Networking. Yep. And we had yesterday 28 people that walked around the botanical gardens and had a coffee afterwards and people from all different industries and businesses. And uh, it was really successful and we got such positive feedback for it. And Obviously, there was a bit of a risk with the weather if it was raining, but the other risk was that no one would show up because everyone's too busy. But I was very pleased to see people enjoying the sunshine and the beautiful spring flowers in the gardens and, and uh, more importantly, collaborating and connecting. Starting a new trend. Yeah, it might be a regular thing. <laughs> what is the one question that you would really love to solve? Oh, I'd like to eradicate smoking. Yeah. Wouldn't that be good? Certainly would. Save a few lives. city these days and they're all out there, whether they're vaping or just on old, old school cigarettes, but it's horrible, horrible. And you just think these people are killing themselves, you know. 
And I know from your background, being a healthy athlete, that you can relate to that, I'm sure. Yeah, I still remember the, the time when they banned smoking in pubs and restaurants and public places in New Zealand back in the well, it would have been late 90s, I think, that it right. first started and just the difference it made. And actually the people that were smokers, to hear them ref- reflect on, oh, wow, it's so, it's so great to go out and come home and your clothes don't That's smell. Stink, they could yeah. actually, they actually feel it. So we, we noticed quite a few at that time that actually gave it up. Yep. It was a good trigger for them. Obviously, there's still a yep. number that kept going, but I don't know how they keep up with it with the cost of them these days. Oh, it's, they're so expensive now, aren't they? It's huge expense. But harking back to Channel 9, my boss was a heavy smoker, and in those days, you could smoke in the office. Yeah. <laughs> We'd go and sit in there to talk to him about something, and you just, you, you wouldn't look forward to that from that point of view. It was terrible. Especially if you had asthma, you'd be in big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? Peak state of mind, goodness. Uh, I think when you're really immersed in something, when you're really focused on something and you're getting, uh, making some headway with it, obviously you've got to be mentally and physically in a peak state of mind, I think. So, you know, I, I have the occasional beer, but I'm not a drinker by any means at all. Um, so, you know, hangovers and that heaviness that you feel with maybe a headache the next day for me is no longer... Uh, an issue so I think you're in a peak state of mind when you're really firing on all levels you know mental physical um, interacting with people um, you know and you, you you're ticking off the the checklist of what you've got to get done in either the day or the week or the month and you can see that so, so you, I'm, you know I'm learning lots here today and it's great to understand what you do and the business model you have and the reason behind creating 50 unsung business heroes how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, well, there's various means of getting in touch. We're on YouTube. We've had about 25,000 views of our videos on YouTube. Likewise, we're on, uh, on um, podcasts as well. Um, but the website is just unsungbusinessheroes.com.au and there's connection methods there. Uh, my email is on there and my phone number's on there. Uh, but also LinkedIn is a great way to connect. And, um, you know, I use LinkedIn every day to share stories and to connect with people. And um, no, I'm happy to connect with people and have a coffee and learn what they're all about. I'd love to do that. Brilliant. So Charles, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You you have a, such a fascinating story where you came from riding your bike and being on the ocean and sailing and to going into that the marketing communication space and and really been able to kind of find yourself in that where you had the opportunity to sell you know stories to people and really understand that it was people that were buying people and not products and not services so that understanding of how important it was to be authentic and to to be yourself in those situations to then come through and decide that you were going to actually create your own company where you're actually allowing or enabling other people to be able to share their stories when they kind of thought there were too many barriers to doing it or afraid of putting their own story out there by themselves. So such a fantastic idea. So I really appreciate your time today oh, and your, you. your, your honesty and your authenticity to share your story with us. No, it's been a pleasure, Craig. No problem at all. Um, uh, I don't think I've done anything super special and um, I think it's just been... Uh, 
great privilege for me to meet all those people and, and for them to share their stories with me has been a real blessing. I've really enjoyed it. And likewise today, thank you for, for being so kind as to interview me. It's the shoes on the other foot, as they say. So it's been great. <laughs> on this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about trust-based leadership. Trust affects a leader's impact and has a profound effect on a company or team achieving their goals. It is the true foundation of a business. Like a building, if the foundation is weak and shaky, it can crumble. Trust-based leadership is all about allowing your staff's competence and motivation to get the job done. Signs that trust-based leadership is working include high levels of autonomy, and low levels of unnecessary control. Employees who have the freedom, independence, and discretion to schedule work, make decisions, and choose the methods used to perform tasks. Trust helps avoid hostility, improves change acceptance, receptiveness to negative feedback, builds team motivation, increases employee loyalty, and encourages ideas sharing, boosts morale, and increases productivity. Become a trust-based leader. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.